good to be here with you this morning. Dads, a special uh, just moment for you. You matter. I'm very grateful for the, the men in this church and the calling that God's put on your life to be a dad. Um, you know, there's nothing like a father, you know. God's given us a very special calling in that way. And I look at the impact of my grandfather, my father, and I'm praying that I would have the same impact on my kids, and I know that you are having the same impact on your kids. So God bless you. Let's open up our Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 19, the next part of the story of Elijah. If you're wondering how to find 1 Kings, you start at the front of your Bible. You go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then you go to Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, and then you get to 1 Kings. We're at chapter 19. 1 Kings 19, and we're going to pick up right with the text this morning, the first three verses. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servants there. Now, if you're reading this story, this, this change should be somewhat of a jolt. I mean, think about what we talked about last week, Elijah at Mount Carmel. Here the man is praying and then at the end of his prayer, as he includes and says, Amen, the fire from heaven falls down and consumes the sacrifice. The people say, the Lord is God. And then Elijah directs them to slaughter the prophets of Baal. I was just talking to someone last week, and they said, well, why did Elijah do that? Why did he direct them to slaughter the prophets of Baal? And really, as I look at that, there's two reasons I see in the text. Number one, Israel during this time is under a theocracy. So God is king, and they execute judgment on God's behalf. But secondly, it's a reminder in the scriptures that God holds teachers to a higher account. And these prophets of Baal are spreading false religion through the land of Israel. So after this, then we move from Mount Carmel and Elijah with the Spirit of the Lord upon him runs even faster than the chariot of Ahab and he arrives at Jezreel. But maybe you've come to understand that this can happen in life. Your finest moment can become your darkest moment in a couple of days, a matter of days. Life can turn on a dime. We, we talk about it sometimes in Christianese, spiritual speak, as I was on a spiritual high and then I went into a spiritual low. In the case of Elijah, this, this change of mood comes about because he's facing his greatest fear and her name happens to be Jezebel. Up to this point in the story, he, he's predominantly dealing with Ahab, okay? Now, Ahab does not wear the pants in the relationship. 
you look at chapter 18, there is someone operating behind the scenes all the time, and her name is Jezebel. She's collecting the prophets, and she's killing them. It's her table that the prophets of Baal are going to and eating at. Now, you could look and say to yourselves, you know, I think that Elijah is being a little bit of a wimp right now, but i got to tell you, if you ever met Jezebel, you'd be scared too. How would you like it after knowing all these things that she's done to receive this message, so may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of them by this time tomorrow. And I have the feeling that Jezebel's not just efficient, she kind of makes things happen quickly, but she's also creative. She's dreaming up all kinds of cruel and unusual punishments for her enemies at any given time. And Elijah's just made his way to the top of the list. Now, what would you do? Would you wait around for Vinnie and Polly to show up to your front door and give you concrete shoes in a nice long bath? Of course, complimentary of Jezebel. Well, bottom line Jezebel represents his greatest fear. So to kind of determine how we would act in this situation, I want you to ask yourself the question, what is your greatest fear? And how do you respond to it? We watched fear grab hold of people, right? It was like a, a switch flipped over this last year when this pandemic happened. And, and when fear descends upon us, it's as if we lose all sense of our normal control of life. We no longer can operate in the way we were. We become fearful to do the basic things that we do. And in the case of Elijah in this story, he enters into this spiral effect, Notice the things that happen to him. First, notice with Elijah that he stops thinking theologically and simply reacts to his circumstances. You see, if we're looking at theological Elijah, that's Elijah at Mount Carmel. He knows God's in control. He prays confidently and the fire from heaven falls down. But this is not Elijah at Mount Carmel. This is Elijah after Mount Carmel. Now, what happened to him? What happened to that power, that courage, that fearlessness? Is this the same guy? Well, it is. But Elijah at Mount Carmel is Elijah operating in the Lord's strength. Elijah after Mount Carmel is Elijah operating in his own strength. And you know what happens when you start operating in your own strength? You get really practical. You do what makes sense in the moment. So look at verses 4 and 5. It says that he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. And he lay down, and he sleeps under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him. Now, I just want you to look at the map there for a minute and see this journey that he takes. First, he moves from Jezreel to Beersheba. Beersheba is the southernmost occupied city of Israel. He then moves from Beersheba off the map into the Negev Desert. Now, if you're looking at that map, from Jezreel down to the Negev Desert is some 200 and 
50 miles, 270 miles, something like that. So what Elijah is doing here is he's placing the greatest distance between himself and Jezebel. You got to think about that. That makes a lot of sense. Why wouldn't you do that? And it's something that you do and I do. You see, when fear enters into our world, it's so easy to stop thinking theologically. We know that we should pray about the things that concern us. We know that we should walk in wisdom. We know that we should wait upon the Lord. But then the flesh starts talking. Come on. You've got to be practical here. You, you can't trust God with this particular situation. Sure, he was there at Mount Carmel, but you were dealing with Ahab then. Now you're dealing with Jezebel, and she's a lot different. And that's what happens. We get practical. I, I see this take place in marriages. Now, I'm not trying to pick on one particular thing here, but this is just an observation that I've seen. Think about what can happen in marriage. Think about the course that a marriage can take. It begins with God bringing two people together, and, you know, that starts off in that spiritual dynamic where you're praying for the person that God would have you marry. You stand at the altar. You make those vows of permanence and exclusivity before the Lord, and, and you say to one another that we're always going to be like this until, of course, difficulty strikes. Hard words are exchanged. Trust is broken. Now, instead of being theological, instead of going out and finding spiritual counsel and, and then applying the spiritual counsel, we get practical. We lawyer up. Assets start being divided. Kids start being leveraged in the situation. Here's the thing that I've come to see. Things really get ugly when we stop thinking theologically and simply react to our circumstances. We think that we're managing our problems, but we're really not. We're actually making our problems worse. And when we do that, we lose sight of what we really wanted in the first place. What did Elijah want? Well, he didn't want to be the standalone prophet for the Lord. He wanted men and women in Israel to come back to the Lord and to follow the Lord's ways and to see God's purposes for their life. But how can he possibly do that some 200 or so miles away from the place where God has called him to be? Well, the simple answer is he can't. You know, when we start getting practical, we're no longer spiritually useful. We're running away from the calling that God has for us. But here's the thing about God. God has this way of getting us back on track when we're running. And he does this with Elijah through a couple of different means. Look at verses 5 through 8. It says that he lay down and slept under the tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of the Lord uh, of the food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. 
Now, God in the scriptures, as I watch how he works when people get off track, he has his gentle means and his not-so-gentle means of getting them back on track. If you want to see the, uh, the difference there, you look at two different prophets. I, I've come to see that it's directly proportionate to the level of stubbornness in a person's heart as to, whether, how, uh, as to how much pressure God will apply. So think about the prophet Jonah, okay? Jonah is very stubborn with the Lord. God says go, and Jonah immediately says no. He gets on a boat, he runs away from God, and he earns himself a first-class ticket in the belly of a fish. Which, by the way, did you guys see that article last week? (laughs) Guys eaten by like a humpback whale, not eaten, but swallowed in the whale's mouth? He's never going to read the story of Jonah the same way again. Now, think about Elijah. Notice the difference here. The pressure that the Lord applies is much different. There's this gentle leading. He says, arise, and he prepares food for him. He gives him a destination to go to. You see, God knows that Elijah is not necessarily being stubborn. He's beat up. He's been doing things God's way. And Jezebel's threat is like the straw that breaks the camel's back. Now listen to this. I know that any given Sunday, there are beat-up Elijahs in this room. There are. You've been walking with God. Difficult things have entered into your world. But listen. He will lead you back. He will gently lead you back if you will follow his lead. Notice that Elijah, when he's told to arise and eat, he arises and eats. When he's told to go to the next destination, he goes with God. If you will let him gently lead you, he will gently lead you. Now notice the extensiveness of the travel here. Um, Elijah is called to travel from the Negev Desert down to Mount Horeb, which is also known as Mount Sinai. Now, this is a special location, isn't it? It's the Mount of God. This is the place where Israel is called to go to to receive the covenant after they've left bondage of Egypt. They receive the Ten Commandments here. Sinai is a special place. It's a place where God reveals new things about himself to his people. And it's also the place where he's going to address Elijah's fear. Now look at verse 9. The text says that he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here Elijah. Now, I want you to notice that that phrase, the word of the Lord, has been conspicuously absent up to this point in the story. Normally, as you're watching Elijah move from location to location, that phrase is involved. You see it in chapter 17, verse 2, chapter 17, verse 8, chapter 18, verse 1. The Lord, word of the Lord came, the Lord says, go, Elijah goes. Well, it finally comes back here in verse 9. And God asks him that question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, that is ever God's question to you when you are running from him. It's a call 
to, re- to reassess your position. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 3 what God said to Adam when Adam was hiding? He said, Adam, where are you? Where are you? When God asks you that question, He's, he's drawing you out. He's inviting you to confess to Him your fears and your shortcomings and even your feelings. And look at what Elijah says to the Lord. He says in verse 10, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Now, Elijah has developed a curious case of selective memory. He's lost perspective. You, you could say to him, you could say, Elijah, now that's just downright not true. We just watched what happened. God showed up in a big way in Mount Carmel. Didn't you watch the people of Israel turning back to him? The altar being rebuilt, the prophets of Baal slayed. Why are you saying these kind of things? Well, here's the thing. All of that doesn't matter. You see, When you have lost perspective, you can't see the positive developments. It's like blinders go up and you fixate upon the negative only. Now, what I'm about to share with you is somewhat of a raw story for me. You see, while I was on sabbatical, I had lost perspective. Uh, Katie and I had come off of a particularly just difficult time, intense time of ministry. And so we left from the church and entered into sabbatical on a deficit, physically, spiritually, emotionally. I was feeling disillusioned even. I had had dreams about what ministry could look like and should look like, and they were my plans, my ambitions, and none of those things seemed to be materializing. Now, things got increasingly worse for me, actually, when I read a Christian biography. I was reading about the life of uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's a man I admire. He's a preacher, and he coined this phrase that preaching should be logic on fire, meaning that it needs to be deeply biblical from the Word of God, but directed at the human heart. It's not just enough to know the Scriptures, but you must love the Scriptures and want to live the Scriptures. Well, I'm reading this biography And as I'm reading it, I'm watching all of these people come to Christ under Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preaching. I'm sitting there thinking, well, I'm not seeing that kind of stuff happening right now. And then it gets into his spirituality, and it seems like he's such a deeply spiritual man. And I'm sitting there like, I guess I'm okay. And he's so pure. I mean, it's almost as if on earth he's achieved perfection. I'm like, I'm not anything like that. So I spiral into this depression. I'm thinking to myself, I've got nothing to give. I don't even know if I can go back into ministry right now and if someone asks anything of me that I can give them anything. And then I start praying like Elijah, Lord, have I ever done anything of value for you? Have I done anything good? Is there any way that I could be useful to you? It seems like I'm so, you know, all about these things. And is anyone else on board? Can I even lead a horse to water? Well, listen to this. When we descend into despair, 
We can dance between exaggerated self-loathing and an exaggerated self-importance. That's what Elijah is doing in this story. That's what I did. God, just take me now. I need to die. You know, I'm done with everything. And God, I'm the only one that really matters in all of this situation because I, only I, even I, am your prophet and no one else, right? But God has a way of getting us back on track. Now, I want to tell you that when you're praying and you're in a state like this, the worst thing that you can possibly pray is, God, fix my problem. Just fix it. Take it away. Let's go back to life as normal. Fix it. Don't pray like that. You're missing out on God's best when you pray like that. No, when you're going through a difficult situation, you need to pray, God, grow me through this. Enter into this situation with me. Take what is lacking in me, what needs to be changed and transformed, and let me look more like Jesus as I go through this. As I was praying, I was reminded of what the Apostle Paul said when he had his thorn in the flesh. The Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient. And uh, in my case, I had to come to terms with my disappointments and own the facts that I wasn't trusting God in the way that I should be and could be. And I also learned another important lesson. It's about Christian biography. Okay, here's the thing. Christian biography is also written in the form that you call hagiography. Okay, that's an ideal, idealized writing. It's the kind of lighting, writing where you highlight only the strengths of the person and you never talk about the weaknesses of a person. It's kind of like sitting around a church group as they're dialoguing about the days gone by 30 years ago. And it's like, do you remember when Jesus's Shekinah glory showed up to church every single Sunday? Only, you know, if you were actually living those times, that's not how it actually transpired. That's why I love Bible biography, because it's so real. I mean, who of us can't relate to Elijah in this story? Who has never felt this way? Who's never had a a season of life where you haven't felt downright defeated? So we need the Scriptures, and we need the truth that the Scriptures give us. Now, we need to ask the question, why does God take Elijah to Mount Sinai? Remember, this is a place where God reveals himself to his people, and he's about to reveal himself in a new way to the prophet. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. The text says this, And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Now, what is God trying to say to Elijah here? Well, we're going to ask, we're going to answer that question in just a minute. But first, I want to ask the question, is Elijah hearing what the Lord is trying to say to him? Now, look at verse 13. It says, and when Elijah heard it, He wrapped his face in his cloak. Now, there's a couple of interpretations as to why that is, why he's wrapping his face in his cloak, but I understand it to be very similar to Adam and Eve wrapping themselves in fig leaves in the Garden of Eden. Essentially, Elijah is 
hiding himself from God. Now look at verse 13. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? The same question. Only this time, maybe a little change in emphasis of the question. Elijah, are you understanding what I'm revealing about myself right now? Now look at verse 14. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Did you hear that? It's the same sad story. You see, Elijah has descended into full-on self-pity. Here, the, the God of the universe, right, has just shown him these awesome displays and revealed himself in the quiet whisper, and he still can't get Jezebel out of his head. Woe is me. It's me at it alone, God. God, don't you see all the problems that I'm dealing with here? And in case you're not getting the memo, God, I'm going to tell you it the same exact way as I said it the time before. You know, when we get into this kind of state, God comes along and he says, you know what? Enough's enough. It's time to change your tune here. Now, the life of faith, I've come to realize, is, is like walking up high on a tightrope. It requires skill, finesse, balance, determination to progress through the life of faith. And, and you remember the advice that you were given as a young child when you would climb up high. They would tell you, do not look down. Because what happens when you look down? Well, I've disobeyed that advice. I know exactly what happens. You feel wobbly up there. When you look down spiritually, then you start focusing on all of the selves. Self-loathing. Self-focus. Me, 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 me. No, to, to walk the tightrope, you have to look above. You have to think about the things that are bigger than yourself, the things of God. So when we get into that place of looking down, God's got to do something, right? He's got to take our heads and pick them up so that we can see the things that are above. And that's just what he does in the remaining verses of this text. We'll begin with verses 15 through 18. It says, And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Heziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elijah, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Heziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, in every mouth that has not kissed him. Now, as I look at these verses, as I look at the way that God lifts up Elijah's head, there's three points of application that we can take away from this. The first thing we learn is about God. God works through various ways. You see, at Mount Carmel, the emphasis is on God's spectacular ways, the fire falling from heaven and consuming the sacrifice. But the emphasis in verses 11 and 12 is upon God's quiet ways, his gentler ways. 
He's not found in the spectacular elements. No, he reveals himself on occasion through the gentle whisper. God works both through the miraculous and also the mundane. With this transition of power in Ahab's kingdom, it would not come about through miraculous intervention. It would happen through the normal political process. Don't you see that? Hazael will be king over Syria. Jehu will take over for Israel. And Elisha will be the new prophet. Victory is going to come, but God's the one directing it. Listen, you have to come to realize that there's more to God than fire. There's more to God than fire, than the miraculous ways of God. No, God's plans both involve the quiet ways of his normal providence as well as the noisier ways of his miraculous intervention. Now, what does that mean about God? It means that he's directing the events of history in real time. Do you think that this pandemic hit the world on accident? Of course not. There's no such thing as coincidence with God. No, all of the events that we see in the world are happening because God is directing them, and we know what his ultimate plan is. It's for good. But you have to understand, it's not on my time. Never on my time. It's always on his time. Now look at another point of application here. The other point is this, we are part of the plan, not the plan itself. I think Elijah needed to learn this. As I look at the story, yes, I believe he was afraid that Jezebel was going to kill him, but I don't think that was his exclusive fear. In fact, I think the bigger fear for Elijah was that if she were to kill him, he would be the last of God's people serving God, that it would be the end of the line. Now, can you imagine that? Well, actually, I can imagine that. I've watched Christians, I've watched myself even at times, get into that self-deceived place. We start thinking to ourselves as we're looking out at the world, but like, boy, things are really bad. I just wish someone else loved God as much as I do. And you know what God says to that kind of thinking? Well, just what he said to Elijah I have 7,000 knees that have not bowed and uh, 7,000 mouths that have not kissed Baal. He's always in control. He's always maintaining a holy remnant. He's never wringing his hands upon his throne saying, I wonder if anyone's going to like me today. No, God is constantly 2,000 steps ahead of us. Which leads me to the last point of application. Our role is partly to fight and also partly to prepare the way for others. So part of your responsibility as you walk with God is, yes, to be on the front lines, to do the work of God. But then there comes a time where more and more of your energy needs to be devoted to preparing the next generation to do the work of the ministry. Look at verses 19 through 21 and you'll see this. The text says, So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the twelfth. 
Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, which is a sign that he's calling Elisha to be one of his disciples. In verse 20, And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? Which is essentially like saying, Remember what I have just signified. You need to get into the ministry. Verse 21, And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. All right, what are we seeing here? This is the leadership baton again in the scriptures, right? Elijah needs Elisha, and Elisha needs Elijah. As you look at these transitions, you'll notice a couple of things that younger leaders bring to the table. They bring enthusiasm and energy. The older leader brings experience and direction to the younger leader. So if you look at Elisha, he brings that energy, doesn't he? He is excited to become the prophet of the Lord. He's enthused about it. And Elijah, on the other hand, well, he's tired. He's ready to retire. Go find some nice, cushy place, you know what I'm saying? Elisha is also demonstrating that he's wholly devoted to the Lord. As he sacrificed those oxen, it tells us he sacrificed 12 of them, which means he's wealthy. He's like the better version of the rich young ruler. He gives up all of his material wealth and places himself exclusively in God's hands. And there's so much hope in the name Elisha. Do you know Elijah? It means the Lord is God. Elisha means God saves. So Elisha is like spiritual medicine for broken Elijah. Listen to me. If you're walking upon that tightrope and you're feeling wobbly and you're asking yourself, can I keep going? Maybe it's because you need to start investing in a younger Christian. There's nothing more invigorating for your faith than watching that young Christian capture those aha moments for the first time or take those first steps of obedience. And then you get into your mind and you think, oh boy, I remember when I was doing those things. It's so encouraging. And Elisha, you need an Elijah. An Elisha without an Elijah is... A young man traveling the world without a navigation system. Just kind of aimlessly going about trying to find their way. So we need one another as we see this in the scriptures. Now, as I close, I want to encourage those of you who today feel like beat up Elijah. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you're depressed. Maybe you're wondering, have I really kind of put all my eggs in the right basket by following God? Here's a spiritual truth that this text is showing us. God is bigger. God's bigger than your circumstances. 
God's bigger than your fears. He's bigger than your disillusionments. He's bigger than your discouragement. Anytime you're asking yourself the question, can I keep following him? Should I stay on the tightrope? You need to remember God's bigger. Now, Bella is about to come up and, and lead us in a song. And this song is speaking directly to beat up Elijah's this morning. And the song is based upon Psalm 121, 1 and 2. And in my mind, no better psalm to lift up your head if you're feeling discouraged. Psalm 121, 1 and 2 says this, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we have looked at your text, we've seen that in the spiritual life, we can become defeated. Not because you're defeated, Lord, not because you've ever lost control for even a second, but because, Lord, we've taken our eyes off of the higher things, the higher purposes, the higher realities. I pray, Lord, that if there are any beat-up Elijahs in this room or watching online tonight or today, that you would lift their heads up. That they would indeed see that you are bigger. Lord, I also want to thank you for this new revelation of yourself that you've given Elijah, that you work through the, the gentle whispers. You're in control. All of the events that we turn on in the news cycle that cause us to feel fearful, Lord, we need not fear. Because you're navigating. You're leading. And we know the end. We, we have the book of Revelation, Lord. We have so many promises in Scripture. You will bring about your good conclusion. And we need only, Lord, to do our part we love you and we're grateful to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.